Well, 2013. I bet anybody that's my age never ever dreamt you'd be here in 2013. At least you couldn't comprehend the reality that we'd live that long if Jesus didn't come back. Well, he hasn't come back. The Mayans were wrong. Now, the Mayans maybe weren't wrong. Whoever was interpreting their calendar didn't have a clue what they were talking about. And But God is so clear that, you know what, we don't know the day and the hour. We just don't know the time. And it's probably a really good thing that we don't know the time. And I believe one of the reasons that he doesn't tell us the time is so we're always ready. Always ready. Always looking. Always watchful. Always listening. But 2013 and New Year is always a time, and I'm going to touch on that a little bit, but for Victory Christian Church in 2013, what does God have in store for 2013? I do not have a prophetic word from the Lord in the sense that you might think when he says, what are we going to be doing or seeing in 2013? But I want to share a few thoughts, but I want to back up first for some of the people in the church. And uh, <clears throat> I want to ask a couple questions first, and I'm actually going to ask a few people to stand up when you, if you can answer the question. Now, back in 1982, <laughs> just raise your hand if you weren't even born then. <laughs> yeah. Look it up in the history books. There it'll be. But in 1982, 31 years ago in January, this month, there was a small group in Ballotton, for whatever reason, decided to have a Bible study. Now, if there was anybody here that was in that Bible study, would you just stand up real briefly? Come on, if you were at that Bible study 31 years ago, this is how old they are. Uh, 31 years ago. And eventually we'll look at it, but I, want, I would be curious to also know how many of you never went to Victory Christian Church before this building. This is your experience with Victory Christian Church. If you started coming to Victory Christian Church since this building was built... Would you guys stand up? Amazing. Amazing. So that's less than, how long? <laughs> Six years, seven years. Seven years, okay. Well, I want to back up just for a few minutes to 1982. 31 people, or 31 years ago, I should say. This group of people that got together, I wasn't there, by the way. Um, it was a varied group of individuals and some couples. Um, they came from a whole bunch of different religious backgrounds. They had a whole bunch of different lives and lifestyles that we won't go into today. Um, amen. <laughs> Matter of fact, uh, there were a couple different pastors that came and attended that Bible study at different times, even in the earliest days. Uh, some of the people came once. And never showed their faces again. Uh, other people came quite a few times and just kind of went by the wayside. A few people that just stood up are still coming 31 years later. And when they first met, God had a plan. But it's pretty safe to say, I believe, that not many of the people in that group had a clue what God's plan was. Matter of fact, I would be even so bold to go further and say, none of them had a clue what God's plan was. But for some reason, God had been preparing the hearts of a small group of people and drawing them to a Bible study, to his word, so that he might reveal himself more fully to this group of people in a little town in southwestern Minnesota called Ballotin. 
We still don't understand all the whys, and we still don't have all the answers to the questions that we might have. But he did have a plan. And the interesting thing to me when you look back is, you know, God had prepared hearts. You know, to try to understand and figure out why did that group of people decide to have a Bible study? And, and why did it last? And why are some of them still in the church that came from that Bible study? You know, who knows for sure? We just know that something, God did something. And he was doing it by his word and by the Holy Spirit. The same modus operandi that he uses today. The word and the Holy Spirit. And then he also uses his children, the church, to draw people to himself. During the time they were meeting, slowly the group started to discover that there was evidently a whole lot more to the Christian life than that they knew about. Certainly way more to it than they had experienced before in their lives. And slowly God began to do a work in the hearts of a lot of people in this group and drawing other people to this group. And at the same time, causing all kinds of hilarious stories and rumors in the community. But lives were being changed. As they studied the Word, then one evening the Holy Spirit came in a very dramatic and powerful way and visited the group. And that really changed everything. It pretty much messed up a bunch of people's lives from that day forward. It was awesome. And all of a sudden, lives were beginning to be dramatically changed and impacted. You know, the songs, some of the songs we sang today I'd kept me thinking about the way God can tear down strongholds, the way he can break the chains that keep us in bondage, the way he can take a life that if we look at or if we stand in front of the mirror and look at ourselves in our own life, we think, well, God, you ain't got much to work with here. He can change and do anything he wants when he's got hearts that are prepared and that respond to what he is leading them to do. Some of the lives started to take dramatic changes, so people started to notice. And again, some of what they noticed maybe wasn't all good, but they were noticing dramatic changes. The lifestyles of some of the people were taking dramatic changes. And as dramatic as the external changes were, what was taking place in the hearts of some of these people was even more dramatic. God had created new life. He had given new life. They were born again by the Spirit of God. And things were really changing. And God was doing all this for a purpose and a plan for the individual's lives. And we are part of the fruit. Just think of that. We are part of the fruit of that little group that had the courage and the unction and for whatever reason decided to have a Bible study. 31 years ago, our church, this church, was birthed in the most unlikely of places. Was it the Methodist Church basement the first time? Methodist Church Basement is where the first Bible study was. And if you all knew the group that was there, man, oh man. Man, oh man. <laughs> You'd have said, I don't think <laughs> this is going to work very long. Matter of fact, I remember one of the comments I heard, it was probably from my parents, I don't know, but it was, ah, this group of people, they go overboard and overindulge on everything. Look at their lives. They don't just drink, they get drunk. They don't just, you know, and the list went on and on. This is just another fad that they're jumping into and they're going overboard on. 31 years ago. And it's amazing, if you're around town much, we're still the new church. 31 years. The new church. The Bible study became a church. 
They actually went to Brookings and drove all the way out to Brookings for a time. Some of them were so committed that they went to Brookings every day, every Sunday for church. Then they started meeting in Pam and Evan's basements, and I may have the order messed up a little bit, but did you go to Brookings first or after? First. And they met in Pam and Evan's basement, and it started to outgrow that. I think I was there once, and I got tricked into going to that one. (laughs) My Dan Stewart, he set us up, took us out for supper, and said, oh, by the way, we're going to Evan's for dessert. There's many ways to catch a fish. And you know me, dessert worked. And then they, they moved over to the church on the hill. Some of you that are a little older remember the church on the hill. It was empty. It had, it had been sitting empty. And they moved over there for a short time. And then eventually they purchased a, ballot, a building in ballot and put up that picture of that beautiful blue building. We, they, they bought that, and that's when Cindy and I really got involved, when we started to remodel that building. Uh, we got in after the heavy work was done. <laughs> wisdom. Wisdom. <laughs> but we met there for over 20 years, and God blessed it. Had a few, few different pastors, and, whoops. and somewhere in that time frame, we received an early prophecy, an early prophetic word. And the prophetic word was basically this, that victory was going to be a repair shop. It was going to be a place for the unsaved and for the saved to come in and get healed physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And we have seen God doing that for 30 years. Where God has taken lives where people were hopeless. I was hopeless. (laughs) Sorry, don't know where that came from. And change lives completely. He can heal the brokenness and the woundedness that we can't imagine can ever go away. There's probably people here today that are carrying that kind of garbage in their lives. Pain or, or, or bitterness or anger or whatever. And God can fix it. We've seen him doing it as part of this church for over 30 years. And I trust that many of you that are newer to the church, you've seen it before in other places. And I'm not saying it's all about this church. I'm just saying this is a little bit of our history, a little bit of our DNA. And we believe in that prophetic word has really come to pass. But it hasn't just come to pass in the past. We're seeing it today. I can look out here and I can see many people who the first time we met, first time I met you, it was not under the best of conditions in your lives. You came because you didn't know where else to go. And you didn't hear anything about Mike. What you heard about was God has done something to people's lives that go to that church. What's at that church? Well, it's not something unique to this church. It's what the Word of God is all about. It's what the Holy Spirit does. It's what's on the Father's heart. It's what Jesus came and died for, to take the brokenhearted and heal them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And we have seen that repair shop prophecy played out over and over and over and over. And it's because of that that we have as our mission statement that you may have noticed above the doors of the sanctuary when you walk in that simply says these few words, but it summarizes what we really feel that God has given us as a specific mission as a church. And that's to discover, to help people discover and experience an abundant life in Christ. Jesus didn't die on a cross so we could just get to heaven someday. 
He died on a cross that we could experience the abundant life in our life in the present, in the now. He wants you and I, we're called ambassadors for Jesus Christ. He wants you and I to walk around in our daily life in the workplace and wherever we go as walking billboards for Christ. And he doesn't want us walking around looking like the world. Burdened, depressed, oppressed, fearful, worried. That's not why he died. He died that we might have the abundant life. And that's been our mission, our mission statement, to help people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. In other words, to do what we can as a church to put an environment in place as best we can where God can do what only he can do. And we took that from a scripture verse that most all of you are familiar with in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Who's the thief? Satan. We have an enemy. He is alive and well, and he is at work today. That thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But thank goodness the verse goes on. It says, I came, and Jesus is speaking. And in this section of Scripture, in John chapter 10, he's talking about himself as the good shepherd who cares for his flock. And he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, we're not going to take the time, but I I could, to to break that apart in the Greek. But I'm going to read to you, just in a second or two, uh, 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 someone who has taken it apart and, and rephrased it according to the Greek meaning of the words. But I want to just to make it very clear that we all understand this, that, that Satan is alive and well on this earth and he has been declared by God, the ruler of this world, from his word. There's too many people running around ignorant thinking the devil's the boogeyman or something. He's not just a boogeyman. He is one who is out there to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's what his goal is and he isn't going to quit until Jesus comes back and deals with him for one last time. In Revelations 12.9, it says this, The great dragon, Satan, was thrown out of heaven. When? When he, when he rebelled against God. And then it says this, The serpent of old, Satan, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He deceives the whole world. The world is trapped in the power of sin and death. And now when I'm talking about the world, I am removing God's children from that group of people. We no longer are trapped by the power of sin and death. We still live in this world, and that's why there's so much garbage going on around us. But we do not have to be a part of the world, be affected by the world, controlled by the world, controlled by sin and fear. The victory over sin and death was accomplished at the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus. But the victory that was accomplished, the fullness of that victory hasn't truly been manifested yet on this earth. It does say in 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. The rest of this verse, a lot of you might have heard. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I remember that part of the verse really well. The enemy, like a lion, walking around, prowling around, looking to see who he can devour. He's looking for somebody in a moment of weakness to attack him. But I oftentimes forget the first two words, first three words of that verse. Be self-controlled and alert. 
Self-control is not a big, strong attribute in the lives of most human beings. And alert, we get distracted from the things of the world so much that we don't realize that the enemy is setting a trap. The man I'm going to read this quote from, his name is Rick Renner. And I took this quote, he, he, he's written many, many, many books. But he's written one called The Sparkling Gems from the Greek. It's a daily devotional that was given to me by Kim Sano, actually. And in there, each devotional, he takes some particular scriptures and he does a Greek word study of them. And if you're familiar with the Greek or the Hebrew, a lot of times English language is a little lacking. And the way it's translated in the Bible is accurate, but a little simple maybe. I want to read John 10.10 10 to you. And I think it'll be up on the screen. In what, what he has taken those words and expanded on them. If you have an amplified Bible, it's kind of like that. It's an interpretive, expanded interpretive translation. Here's what he says. The thief, G- Satan wants to get his hands into every good thing in your life. In fact, this pickpocket is looking for any opportunity to wiggle his way so deeply into your personal affairs that you can walk off that he can walk off with everything you hold precious and dear. And that's not all. When he's finished stealing all your goods and your possessions, he'll take his plan to rob you to the next level. He'll create conditions and situations so horrible that you'll see no way to solve the problems except to sacrifice everything that remains from his previous attacks. When he's taken everything that it looks like he's taken everything, he isn't going to back off. He's going to keep coming. He's going to emotionally torment you. He's going to torment you every way he can. Then it goes on and says, the goal of this thief is to totally waste and devastate your life. If nothing stops him, he'll leave you insolvent, flat broke, cleaned out in every area of your life. You'll end up feeling as if you are finished and out of business. Make no mistake, the enemy's ultimate goal is to obliterate you. That's pretty bad. (laughs) We underestimate him. He wants to totally destroy us. Totally. Why? Well, if you're saved, you're saved. Why is he picking on me? Because he wants you and I to be terrible testimonies, terrible witnesses to the goodness of God. We are saved to the glory of God. When he saves us, our life should bring God glory. Satan wants to keep us so under his foot that when people look at us, they don't see anything different than the rest of the world. And God gets no glory. Satan is not concerned so much, really, with hurting you and me or how we feel. He wants to hurt God. That's who he's rebelled against. We're, in his mind, the pawns he uses. But in that, there's a silver lining. You know why he uses us as his pawns? Because he knows God the Father loves us so much, nothing will hurt his heart more. That's how much he loves us. So Satan tries to destroy us. Well, the good news is Rick Renner didn't quit with that verse at that point. He continued in John 10.10. He says, But I came that they may have, keep, and constantly retain a vitality, gusto, vigor, and zest for living that springs up from deep down inside not from anything outside, deep down inside. I came that they might embrace 
this unrivaled, unequaled, matchless, incomparable, richly loaded, overflowing life to the ultimate maximum. Now keep in mind, he didn't just pick words to make this thing really long and flowery. He took all the different Greek words and went with the expanded meanings of the words. This is the life that is being talked about when God says an abundant life. Now some of you might be like me and you'll hear all that and you go, that'd be nice, it's way too good to be true. Well, the first thing we have to understand is there really is an abundant life and that it does exist. There really is one. And it does exist. And that life is filled full of things that are good for us. Things that we would enjoy. Things that would bring glory and honor to God. I'm just going to read a partial list and it starts with the fruit of the Spirit. But some of these are the, these are the things that a, a life controlled by the Holy Spirit, born again believer, living the abundant life should be a part of our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, fruit of the Spirit, compassion, purity, humility, modesty, faith, character, integrity, wisdom, enthusiasm, dignity, optimism, confidence, honesty, and a relationship with God. Does that describe your life? I'd like to say it describes mine. There might be moments when a lot of that's there. But it's either available to us or it isn't. It all is or none of it is. But this is what the abundant life could look like in a child of God. And you notice that whole long list of stuff that I read, and I could go through it again for you, but I won't. But if you notice that list, you can't go to True Value, Menards, or Hy-Vee and buy any of it. No amount of money, man, alive, would I love to open a store if I could sell peace, joy, and love. I could put any price taken on it I wanted and people would line up to buy it. But none of this stuff money can buy. So it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much stuff you have. You can't buy it and you can't trade for it. You can't earn it. It's all part of the package that's wrapped up at Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Christ our Savior, who came and died on a cross for us. And God says, here's this package called salvation. Born again by God. We can possess these qualities. Well, why don't we? Well, we need to understand a couple things. One, they're from God. He gives them as gifts. It says in in James 1, Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change. So all of these things are part of that gift that God gives us. But then there's a scripture in in James 4.2 that says, you don't have because you don't ask. And even if you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. To have the abundant life in Christ is something we have to pursue. God gives it to us. He provides it. It is from Him. It's by grace, but He expects us to respond and pursue it. Why would you want all of those things? So I'd feel better. Well, yeah, you would. 
That's pretty selfish. Why would you want any of those things? Why should we want those gifts? Why should we want all of that abundant life in our life? What should be our primary motive? To bring glory and honor to God. When you start asking, when I start asking for things that I know God wants to give us, and I ask out of a pure heart that's right with Him, He's going to give it to us. He's going to give it to us. He doesn't want you and I walking around oppressed and depressed and defeated. He doesn't want us to be angry, sarcastic jerks. Go ahead. Amen. Amen. Okay. I always count on her when there's appropriate time. He doesn't want me to be like that. He doesn't want you to be like that. So if we ask out of a right heart, why? Why should I do that? Because I want to bring glory to God. It'll make my wife happier too. And you know what? And that brings glory to God. It's also connected. It's also connected. And it's there for us if we pursue it. Are your motives pure? Not only is it real, it does exist. The abundant life is found in only one place. And by now you know what that is, right? In Christ. That's the only place you can find it. Nowhere else. If you do not have Jesus in your life, if you are not born again, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you cannot experience the abundant life in Christ. Now, if you're like me and a lot of other people, I happen to look around sometimes at people that I know aren't saved. Shoot, they could even be hostile towards God. They don't just hate me, they hate God. And they look as happy as can be. And they look as content as they can be. And they seem to be at peace. And I guess i got to admit that they probably are to a degree. And one of the reasons oftentimes that they have some of these attributes that look like the abundant life in Christ is because they are practicing some of the things that we need to pursue as Christians better than we do. They maybe are pursuing integrity. Maybe they are pursuing compassion. But they're doing all of this in their flesh, which brings no glory to God. And the bottom line is this. Ultimately... Their life, whether it looks abundant to you and I or not, is worthless and very, very temporary. Jesus said this in John 8, 24. Unless we believe in him, we will die in our sins. Unless we believe in him, we'll die in our sins. So we have to realize that no matter how much happiness a non-Christian seems to have or how much joy or peace, unfortunately... It's very limited, and it's going to be short-lived. Because once the end of this life comes, and the rest of our eternal life, they're going to find themselves separated from God. And in complete torment and agony. And even the appearance of abundant life, you know, we pick on these poor movie stars and professional athletes a lot, but they're, they're out there as standards of big bucks, Cars, mansions, good-looking women, good-looking men, all this stuff. You know, wow, are they happy. Until you start reading about their lives and what's going on in their lives when the camera's not on them. They're miserable, oftentimes miserable. Why? They have everything that most of us think we're supposed to have, right? They don't have Jesus. And if they don't have Jesus, they really have got nothing of value. 
Bible says in Ephesians 2.4, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. If you are alive in Christ, the abundant life is available to each one of us. Now, to carry out the mission that we believe God has called this church to, helping people to discover and experience the abundant life in Christ, there has to be some sort of plan. And we believe God has given us a plan, but it's kind of a broad points or an outline type plan that we don't know how it's all going to be filled in in 2013 or beyond should God tarry and not come back before. But if you have looked on the wall over there where the water fountain is, when you come in the foyer, you see three beautiful pictures. And on those three beautiful pictures, there's a key word. And each one of those key words represents a part of our vision for carrying out the mission of helping people to discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. The first word you would see is the word connect. Our, our role as Christians, as the hands and feet of Jesus, as his mouthpieces on this earth, is to assist people in discovering a relationship with God, connecting with God. The Bible says they're all separated from God because of sin. You and I were separated from God because of sin. If you're sitting in here today, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're still separated from God because of sin. And our job is to help connect, provide an environment, preach the word clearly, have classes, teach, mentor one another, fellowship with one another, do all these things, share the gospel so that we can connect with God. And also a dual meaning to the word connect is to connect with one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need one another. God did not create a bunch of Lone Ranger Christians. In Hebrews 10, 24, it says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You ever feel like not showing love and not doing good deeds? It's really nice if a brother or sister in the Lord could come along and encourage you. Come on, hang in there. Pursue love. Good deeds. And it goes on and says, Let's not give up meeting together. God knows we need to meet together. He knows we need one another to encourage one another. He says, Don't quit meeting together as the summer in the habit of doing. Let's encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I am convinced, I'm convinced that you cannot grow spiritually the way God wants us to do all by yourself, alone. And I know we have the word, and I can go lock myself up in a monastery somewhere, and the Holy Spirit can teach me. I get all that, okay? But I, not, I do not believe that's how God has designed us. He's designed us to need one another, to build up one another. So to connect is part of our program, part of our plan, part of our vision for carrying out that mission. And the second word that you'll see out there is simply the word grow. Connect and then grow because it's a process. Living the abundant life, wouldn't it be nice if it was like walking through a door? Here I am, a worthless sinner that's going to hell, and I open the door, and the door is Jesus. It's the right door, and I step through, and it doesn't look much different right away. But it's all different, but it doesn't look different yet. It's a process of growth, a process of walking it out, growing in our relationship with the Lord. How do we do that? Well, you've got to get to know Him. He's given us the Bible. How do we do reading the Bible? That's just a dry book. It's hard to read. I don't get it. So? Push on. He wants us to read his word. The Holy Spirit will reveal it to us. Get a translation you can read. 
study, life experiences. And now when I say that, some of you might go, what? You know what? A lot of the life experiences build our faith. God allows things into our life, brings things into our life, and he reveals himself and shows himself. I mean, if you'd have took that group of people 31 years ago on a cold January evening and took a snapshot and pasted it all over and said, 31 years from now, this group is going to be a church. They're going to have a nice building and they're going to be doing things for the Lord. And they looked around and said, no, they're not. They're all going to be sitting back in the bar where they all came from just before Bible study. And God says, I got a plan. But we had to grow. And grow not only in our relationship with the Lord, but our relationship with other believers, life groups, fellowshipping with one another, having a cup of coffee with a brother and sister in Christ. We don't isolate ourselves from the world. We don't hide from the world. We're just supposed to be light and salt to the world, but we need each other because the world will suck you dry. It'll drain the life out of you. Man, just turn on the TV and sit there for a day. And if you can get out of your chair after that, if there's any life left, you're going to need an infusion of God and the Holy Spirit real fast. But we are called to live in that world and be light and salt. That's why we need to be filled with the Word, filled with the Holy Spirit, encouraged by our brothers and sisters in Christ. So connect and then grow. And then lastly, serve. Why serve? Because the church needs laborers. No, that's not Why? might be a fact, but it's not why. We serve. Remember, we do all things to the glory of God. Our serving out of a right heart brings glory to God. He has given us gifts and talents, skills to use for His glory, for His honor. And we can serve. And where do we serve? Who do we serve? Well, we serve God first, obviously. And we serve our brother believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Help serve one another, but also we're called to be serving in the world. To serve those that don't know Jesus yet. So that by our actions, by our love, by our serving, by our words and deeds, they see Jesus. They don't see you or me, they see Jesus. Now it may take them a while to realize what they're looking at. And we may eventually have to use words to help them understand. But whatever it is, we need to serve God and the world. You know, the world, Matthew 5.16, it says, Let your light so shine. Let your light so shine. Well, that's good. Why? So that they may see your good deeds. See, that sounds kind of prideful. The rest of the verse says, And praise your Father in heaven. That's why we want to be serving. So as a church in 2013, I don't know what it's all going to look like. I don't know all of the details that are going to fit into that broad outline, but we believe God is going to do some amazing things. We also believe it's going to look different than we're used to. God likes to mess with you. Did you ever notice that? About the time you get comfortable, pulls the chair out from under you because you're getting too comfortable. So we, we believe it's going to look different, but we don't know what. But we believe that the mission is still the same. We are to help people in any way we can to discover and experience the abundant life in Christ by doing all that we can to help them connect with God 
and connect with the body of Christ. Do and provide every opportunity to grow in our relationship with the Lord and with one another and to serve. And when we do that, we will see a healthy body functioning the way God intended. And it's so clear in the picture that he uses of the human body. You got the hands and you got the feet, you got the nose, you got the ears, you got all that stuff, but it's all got to be working so everything is working the way God intends. And for God to do what we believe he wants to do through this group of people in our communities represented by this church, it's going to require everybody doing what God has called them to do. And it's going to require one of the things we were praying for in pre-service prayer, it came forward, you know, put a fire in our belly again. You know, one of the things that drew me to that group that started out as a Bible study is I saw something I'd never, ever seen before in a Christian. I saw people on fire for God. They couldn't get enough of the Word. You didn't have to wonder what time you were going home because you might not even go home because you can't get enough of the Bible in you. You're crying out for the Holy Spirit. You're just consumed with this. I believe that's how God wants us to be, and I believe we can still function in the world, in our workplace, in our families, in our jobs, and still be that way. I believe that's what he wants us to be more like in 2013. So we hope and invite and encourage you to pursue the abundant life in every way. God will release it into your life. But I have to ask at least two questions before I quit. Have you discovered God? If you haven't discovered God, none of this other stuff is going to be of any value whatsoever. And by discover God, I simply mean, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That means I acknowledge my sin, I acknowledge his perfection, and I acknowledge he died for me. And because he died for me and loved me that much, I choose to receive him as my substitute, and now I surrender my life to him. And it's a surrender that brings great blessing. One of the best lies that the enemy uses is, you don't want to lay down your life. You don't want to surrender. All your fun is going to be gone forever. You're going to be a miserable Christian. That's just not true. It's such a paradox. When I surrender my life to God, I receive the fullness of life back like I never imagined before. And the second question is, where are you at in the process? If you've connected, where are you at in the growth process? Where are you at in the serving process? Pursue. Take initiative. If you're not in a life group, find out how to get in one. Don't wait for somebody to come and beg you or ask you. If somebody you talk to like me and I I don't remember and I forget, don't go, geez, that turkey. I asked him. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't love me. He doesn't even know I exist. Nah, I forget a lot. It's pretty simple. Pursue it. Pursue mentoring. Pursue Bible studies. Pursue whatever it takes. Take responsibility for your faith. And listen to the Holy Spirit, because he'll guide you. Most of us sitting here, we've got sin that we haven't dealt with yet, whether we're saved or not. Holy Spirit's going to put his finger on it. Respond. He'll give you the grace to repent. When we do all these things, when we we surrender and we do everything we can to line our will up with God's will, it's like the, the, the reservoir of his grace is released into our life. 
to empower us, to enable us, really to make Philippians 4.13 a reality. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I do thank you and praise you for the history that we have as a church. I thank you for those early pioneers that you raised up. God, I thank you for the way that you have given us grace and shown your mercy that 31 years later we're still here. God, we praise you and thank you for your plan that has unfolded. God, and we look forward with anticipation and excitement and a righteous fear of the Lord of your plan that will unfold in the year to come. God, we thank you and praise you for your Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in each one of us. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not believe your truth, that you have a destiny for them, that that lie that's keeping them from believing that would be broken and gone from their mind. That the enemy, this devouring lion, would have no place in their life. And we give you all the praise and glory for it in Jesus' name.